Hebrews chapter 7, we're continuing our teaching uh, on uh, Melchizedek and Christ and the Le- Levitical priesthood. Sometimes I preach and sometimes I teach, and this is definitely a more of a teaching time that we're in here. Just some content that I think we need to cover. Um, and I mentioned last week that I thought this would be a, a two-week kind of thing where I laid the ground, groundwork. Uh, last week, talking about, I'm not going to go over that again, but basically ironed out what the author's getting at there uh, and the logic he's using to get there. And then I wanted to analyze eight ways that the author says that uh, Christ is superior, superior to or supersedes the Levitical priesthood. That's what's at issue here. The author's trying to say that you don't need to have this Levitical priesthood where you sacrifice animals for individual sins over and over again because Christ has made the sacrifice once and for all, and so he's our great high priest. That's what he's getting at. And he does that by showing eight different ways that Melchizedek, this interesting figure in the Old Testament, uh, by showing eight ways that Melchizedek is superior to the Levites and therefore that Christ is superior to the Levites. I dealt with one last week. And I want to deal with the other seven this week. Uh, That probably won't happen. I I will uh, probably get to the second one this week. Um, But see, it's just when you sit down and start chewing on the stuff, it starts coming alive, it starts growing, and by the time... Uh, you get done down to Saturday, this minor point grew into a major point, and the Lord says, go with it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to talk about the second way in which Christ uh, supersedes the, the Levitical priesthood. Um, I'm not going to deal with all the points this slowly, I don't think. <laughs> but um, I do want to deal with this one quite slowly because I think it's a very important point. The first way in which Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which is to say the first way in which Melchizedek was superior to the Levitical priesthood, was that the Levitical priesthood was under the authority of a king, whereas this priest has the authority of a king. Okay, that was the first way. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, buy the tape. Secondly, Christ supersedes the Levitical priesthood in that the Levitical priesthood, we'll see here shortly, was very restricted in its focus, more restricted than it was supposed to be, in fact, Whereas Christ's priesthood, being an, uh, in the order of Melchizedek, is a universal priesthood. So I, this morning, want to talk about something about the universal priesthood of Christ and the universal love of God, which means his love for all people. I was going to read the last half of Hebrews 7, but instead, let's fall a little short of that and read the first three verses once again. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. This king... Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God. That's the phrase we're going to talk, talk about this morning, priest of the Most High God. The Hebrew is El Elyon, Most High God. Um, and it was the name, one of the names that was given to God before God identified himself with the covenantal name with Israel of Yahweh. Okay, and that will become significant later on. The priest of the Most High God, God of all gods, that's what they said about him. There's a lot of gods out there, but this is the God of all gods. He's the most high God. He is. Melchizedek met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings in Genesis 14, and Melchizedek blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had. Melchizedek, his name, first of all, means king of peace. It means king king of righteousness. Next, he's also king of Salem, which is to say king of peace. And that's what we're going to talk about next, after this week. Without father, without mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, strange, we'll talk about it later, 
but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he's a priest of the Most High God. Pray with me for a moment here. Lord, this is your word, and um, it is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. But it's only that, Lord, when it's accompanied by your Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit would be here. Holy Spirit, we invoke you to be in our presence here and fill each word, Lord, with your authority that the word may function as a sharp two-edged sword and cut out of our life, surgically remove everything that shouldn't be there, and pierce into our inner heart and transform us, Lord. We are people, Lord, as we're here this morning, I pray on behalf of all of us anyways, that we be people who want to change, to be conformed to your image, to be doing the work that you've called us to do. And Lord, it's your responsibility, not the responsibility of any preacher, to create that in our hearts. So, Lord, use the words here this morning, this teaching here this morning, to change us to be the people you want us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to back into my message here this morning uh, through the back door, kind of. And so the first is kind of like, uh, I'm going to catch you from the broadside. I'm telling you ahead of time. Uh, the first ten minutes you're going to be wondering why I'm saying all this, but it will become clear later on, so just hang with me. This is teaching time. I had a conversation with a wonderful middle-aged man this week. He's about 78 years old, and uh, that's now defined as middle age. And um, he was just a wonder. He was just he had a he had a, this inquisitive mind, a hungry mind, um, all sorts of questions. He doesn't even go to this congregation, but he had contacted me a while ago and wanted to set up an appointment because he read letters from a skeptic and he really related to my dad. And there's some questions he just had to talk about and he didn't know who could answer them. He's a former pastor, as a missionary, had done all this work and stuff. And here he is, 78 years old, and he's got the, the inquisitiveness of a, of a kid. I loved it. So he has all these questions. One of his questions is a question I hear over and over and over again. In fact, I, I, I spoke up at St. Cloud State this last week to an uh, auditorium of non-Christians and then took questions and answers. And this is one of the questions that they had. It's a question that probably most of us have had, and I want to use this as an occasion to address this somewhat difficult and maybe even a little controversial question. But here's what this guy asked. He said, I've always wondered about this. Why is, does the Bible seem to be so narrow? It seems like a very narrow book. I mean, God, it looks like, is only concerned with a few individuals early on. You got Abraham. You got Adam. You got Noah. You know, a couple individuals. What about the rest of the world? And then, even when God does broaden a little bit and he's concerned about a nation, the nation of Israel, it looks like God's only concerned with Israel. But what about all these other people? And he went on to say, you know, I've studied world history. And, and you look at Egyptian history. Thousands of years of incredible history. Was God totally unconcerned with them? You look at Chinese history, the dynasties that come and went, and the wars that went on, and the philosophers. Was God totally uninterested in them? You look at Greek history and, and the philosophers that they've had and the cultural changes that they've had. And, you, and, and all these different cultures he's learned about and has learned to appreciate these different cultures and the histories of these different cultures... And in that light, when you consider all the people that have ever existed and all the nations and the different cultures and the diversity of, 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 of uh, ways that people have lived, when you turn to the Bible, it seems like you're dealing with just a thin thread. A thin thread. And it looks like God's only concerned with that thin thread. To make matters worse, this guy had the understanding that nobody outside of that thin thread ever got saved. 
So he's saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. This guy, you know, he's supposed to love everybody, cares about everybody, uh, but most of the people are born in a situation such that they'll never believe, and they're going to go to hell, and this, this doesn't square with what I read about God's love in the Bible. What do you do with that? I don't know. What do you do with it? It's a very good question. One that uh, needs to be answered. Here's what I said to him. It may satisfy you, it may not. And it's going to come around to the center of this message this morning. God always has used, and I suspect love has to use, what's called the mustard seed principle. Talked about it before, I'll just review it a little bit. Jesus said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like a mustard seed, which initially it's the smallest of all seeds. You can hardly see the thing. But once it's planted in the ground, if you water it and let it grow and get rid of things that obstruct that mustard seed, it will grow to be the largest of all garden shrubs. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Or the kingdom of heaven, he said, is like leaven. A little leaven. It starts with just a little pinch. Just a little pinch. You put it in. I don't know anything about cooking, but I've heard this. You put it in, and it leavens the whole lump. Jesus said it. This, the, the master chef told me. So you put it in, a little pinch, a little spot and it leavens the whole lump. The kingdom of God is like that. It starts off very small. I think because love has to start off very small, and it gradually grows. This is what God does in our life. We're transformed by the mustard seed principle. You give your heart to Jesus Christ, he plants the seed. It is himself. He plants it inside of you, in the core of your being, in your heart of hearts, in your spirit of spirits, the depth of your soul. There's a mustard seed planted. And it begins to grow. If you water it with the word, you water it with worship, you water it with preaching, it grows. You get things out of the way, get all those old words out of the way, and it gradually grows. And it takes over your thinking, it takes over your personality. It sounds like invasion of the body snatchers, but it's really in a good form here. But it doesn't happen all at once. This is my point. God, it's not like, you know, you're walking around Mr. Mr. Reprobate, and all of a sudden the Lord, you know, you, you, you give your heart to Jesus Christ, and now you're Mr. Sanctified. It doesn't work like that. Rather, you turn, you turn from the old, and gradually, now there are some pretty radical changes. I'm not minimizing that. But there are areas, we, we still think like the old self, sometimes feel like the old self, sometimes act like the old self, sometimes struggle with the old self, but gradually, if we allow God the room to grow, the mustard seed takes over. And you begin to think more like kingdom people and act more like kingdom people and have attitudes more like kingdom people and hearts like kingdom people. The mustard seed grows. Because God, he doesn't just come in and bulldoze over you. He treats you like a person even when you're a sinful person. And thank God for that. Otherwise, he wouldn't treat, it, wouldn't treat any of us. He respects the dignity even of your old self. He wants to transform it, not obliterate it. So he works. He gradually, he, out of love, he gently grows. It's that way when, when, when you bring the gospel to a culture. You can't just go in there. This is the mistake of some of the... Uh, the, the missionaries of bygone centuries. They'd come in there and they'd equate American culture with the gospel. They'd go into Africa and they'd say, hey, you, you got to get rid of this. you got to start wearing a white shirt and a tie. I mean, it's just not right for you to be doing the things you're doing and whatever. And they'd blow up the culture. And uh, uh, a lot of times it would really ruin the cause of Christ in these cultures. It works much more effectively, uh, as Hudson Taylor saw. When you go in and you, you plant a seed, Leave the culture intact, kind of like Paul did when he was talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill, Acts 17. You leave, what's there, leave stuff intact, but you find an opening to plant a seed. He was preaching to the unknown God. You guys worship an unknown God? I want to talk to you about him. 
I'm not going to even shoot at the false gods. I'll talk to you about the unknown God. Plant a seed and begin to let it go. Grow. Um, plant a seed in, in the leader of the tribe. Let the mustard seed grow in his life and gradually begins to influence other people. And gradually, gradually, through the love of God, the culture begins to be changed. It's the mustard seed principle. You don't bulldoze over people. You treat them with dignity. And you transform it from the inside. This is, incidentally, here's another question that people have frequently had. We, we all should have as we read the Bible. Why is there, a student uh, Thursday night at St. Cloud said this, why is it, if this is the word of God, why is it that you got slavery condoned in the Bible? And you got women being treated as property in the Bible. Why is it? Why does, in the Old Testament, you have polygamy all over the place. David's got hundreds of wives, but in the New Testament, it's forbidden. You've got monogamy. What's going on here? Why is it that there's so much that seems to be barbaric in the Old Testament? Slaughtering people. God has them go in there and waste the Canaanites and all this bloodshed and whatever. I think if you understand the mustard seed principle, you'll find the, 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 at least the, the beginnings of an answer to that question. Even God, when he brings his word to a people, he doesn't just say, all wrong, here's the right way of doing it. Rather, he starts where you're at. He starts where you're at personally, right? He takes you for where he doesn't, he just starts where you're at, this is where you are, okay. Let's gradually begin to change. So also with cultures. Uh, even with the Israeli culture, here's where they're at. They're hard-hearted, they're practicing polygamy, uh, they're divorcing their wives, they're doing all sorts of stuff. The Lord... What he first does is he plants seeds that will overturn that and it begins to transform it from the inside out. So, for example, you do have in the Old Testament women being treated as property. God never says, I like that. What he does, though, as a first step towards planting a mustard seed that will transform that is he, he, he humanizes it. He takes, he takes out some of the hard edges of it, okay? And he, he, he gives some rules that, that govern how men who are in the power position are to treat their wives. That's step number one. Then through Paul, he plants another seed in Galatians. In Christ, you know what? There's neither male nor female. Bam, there's a seed planted. You know what? Husbands, submit to your wives and wives to your husband. Woo, major seed planted there in the first century. But you don't overturn everything. You don't overturn slavery even right away. Rather, he plants the seed. In Christ, there's neither bondman nor free, okay? You plant the seed. You begin to water it. It begins to grow. God's plan is to take over the whole world with it, but you start with the mustard seed. And then it grows, and it changes. That's why, you know, when, when God's dealing with barbaric cultures that just understand violence, you know, if you're playing hardball, you've got to play hardball. And so some of the stuff in the Old Testament is God playing hardball for pe with people who don't understand anything else. God does the same thing with the entire world, okay? This is what I'm getting at. The world, here it is, this world is lost, it's at war with God. God, the history of the Bible is the history of God planting a mustard seed. Sometimes it gets squashed, so he plants another mustard seed. And the purpose for his planting the mustard seed is to have it grow. He plants Adam. Then he plants Noah. Then he plants Abraham. Very particular, very focused. Then he plants Israel. And his goal there is to have a mustard seed that will transform the world. And then he plants Jesus Christ, who is the mustard seed of all mustard seeds. And then he's growing the church, which is now the outgrowing of the mustard seed. And his goal is to transform the world. What I want us to see here, because if we don't understand it, we're never going to understand the significance of Melchizedek in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. Two things here. Number one. God's goal was always to transform the world. It still is to transform the world. He has a heart for all human beings. 
His goal is to bring the world under the lordship of Jesus Christ and to have human beings who are created in his his image to be stewards of this world, guardians reflecting his love over the world. That's his goal. But he doesn't do it automatically. He plants the mustard seed. Now, the focus of the Bible isn't an encyclopedia book on world history. He doesn't tell us what he's doing in other cultures and stuff. His focus is very narrow. The Bible is a a history book about how the mustard seed has grown, if you will. And it's a manual for people who are part of this mustard seed to understand what their vocation is. But it's a very narrow focus. No, don't mistake that focus to to think that that's God's only interest. That's That's what we need to know to get our job done. But it doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. The goal of the mustard seed is to grow and to reach out and take over the world. The second point here, it's a very important question is this. Don't assume that because the Bible doesn't talk much about what God was doing with the Chinese people, that God didn't care about the Chinese people. Or that God wasn't even working among the Chinese people. Now again, we're not told very much at all about how God works in cultures outside of the jurisdiction of this mustard seed. Follow me here. Don't don't, don't check me out here. Follow. Mm -hmm. Eye contact. All right, good. This is an important point. But God is working there. Now, we, we know that God's working there for several reasons. One is that he tells us about his universal love for humankind. He doesn't just say, oh, sorry, wrong in the wrong place, born in the wrong place, you're going to hell. Outside of the, my interest scope, you know, you're Assyrian, I don't like you. No, it's not like that. God's working in all places. The Bible in Acts 17 tells us that God has never, among any of the peoples of this world, left himself without a witness. Think about this. I mean, we have a, a little, some kernels in the Bible that tell us about God's universal activity. For example, Melchizedek. Here's a guy from the land of Canaan. Um, Canaan was, in about a millennium later, going to be destroyed because of its wickedness. And from then on in history, they were seen as being a terrible, barbaric people because they turned out to be a terrible, barbaric people. But here's a Canaanite from the land of Salem, from the town of Salem. He is portrayed as being a hero of heroes, the hero of faith par excellence, the type of Christ. He's a priest, and he's a king of Salem. That tells you that there are other people in Canaan who believe like he believes. And he's a priest of the Most High God, so exalted, so lifted up is he, that Abraham even pays tithes to him. Now, if God, if we didn't have three verses in the book of Genesis, we would have thought that God didn't care about the Canaanites. Turns out, I mean, Melchizedek got his information some way. He's a sinner like you and me, so whatever he got, he got by grace. But this tells us that God was working there. When, where people's hearts are open, where people's hearts are salvageable, God's going to be at work doing that. And you find throughout the Bible little testimonies of people who are outside of this mustard seed line, but somehow have a knowledge of God, have a relationship with God, based on the limited understanding and the limited light that they have. Jethro, Mo- Moses' father-in-law, primary case, he's portrayed as being really a godly man outside of the Jewish, uh, Jewish lineage. Job, a major hero of the faith. But he's not Jewish, he's totally pagan. I forget what nationality he was, but, but he's pagan. Somehow he's got this knowledge of God, and he's walking with God. I mean, among the whole earth, he's the most righteous. God's working in these other places. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus Christ is the light that lightens every person that comes into the world. There isn't a person that is born that God doesn't care about, that God doesn't love, and that God's not going to work with in some capacity to bring some kind of a relationship with. At the same time, we know this. People, anyone who is saved is saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
See, I can just see some people turning their wheels and saying, oh, then that means all religions are okay, all religions lead to God, you know, my way is my way, your way is your way, and everything is equal, and blah, 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 blah. No. The Bible is very clear that people are saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one goes to the Father except through me. It is through the particular work that Jesus Christ did on the cross that anybody is saved, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so all need to be forgiven by the grace of God. Jesus Christ is the means of that forgiveness, and there's no other way. At the same time, I know that Melchizedek and Jethro and, and Job and Rahab and all the people of the Old Testament who are genuine believers are there in heaven, but they didn't know Jesus Christ, which tells me that the blood of Jesus Christ can embrace more people than know about it. At the same time, on the other hand, and on the other hand, at the same time, the Bible's, God tells us what we need to know to get the job done. So he doesn't tell us anything about that. What he does tell us is this, and here's our marching orders. We are called to proclaim Jesus Christ to all people. We are called to carry the good news to all people, and we are called to do that with a sense of urgency, knowing that you're in grave danger until you have an explicit awareness of Jesus Christ and are walking with that, you're in grave danger. At the same time, we're not the judge of the earth. And that's the point of the whole thing. God is the judge of the earth. So about what happens outside of this mustard seed growing here, that's God's business. He is the judge. Will not the judge of the world do right? Yes, he will. So you leave it in God's hands. But it's enough to know. And here's the main point I'm getting at here. And this is leading up to the, to the text. It's enough to know that God is not myopic in his focus. He's not parochial. Acts chapter 10 says that God does not show favoritism. He has a heart that's universal. He created the world with a love for all humankind that was to come. And he's always endeavoring to bring the good news to them. To whatever is salvageable, he tries to salvage. He wants to bring as many people in the kingdom as he possibly can. Israel was raised up. This mustard seed of the nation was raised up as a means of reaching the world. God looked among the peoples of the world, and for reasons that look arbitrary to us, that's what Romans 9 is about, he chose Israel. And he says, I'm going to use you to be a, a, a priesthood to all nations. That was their goal. That was the purpose. He preserved their uniqueness with all the sacrifice stuff and the various laws they had so that they wouldn't become polluted with the world around them because when the salt loses its savor, you've got nothing to salt with. Jesus taught us that. When the mustard seed gets rooted out with other things, it ceases to be a mustard seed. You have to keep yourself separate from the world if you're ever going to reach the world. So God's very concerned with, even in a way we look back at it and we think, man, that's weird. You know, all those regulations in Leviticus about what to wear, not to wear, how to boil your goats, and all sorts of weird rules. But it was all about, if you understood the cultural context, it's all of a way of God saying, keep yourself separate. Don't become like them because I want to use you to reach them. His heart's universal. Unfortunately, and now we're getting into the text. Unfortunately, Israel lost, or to a large degree, lost that perspective. They forgot that they were called not to be God's special people, but rather to be God's, have a special vocation to all. And you forget the point that being distinctive is, is about having something to offer the world rather than thinking you're superior to the world. It becomes a judgmental factory where you think it's your job just to judge everybody else. When God is the judge of everybody else, what God's concerned with is keeping the mustard seed a pure mustard seed. Israel got like that. To a certain degree, even the name Yahweh became sort of uh, the, 
among some of the Jews, especially those in the professional ministry, it became sort of their, their tribal word for God. Yahweh is our God. You know, Yahweh likes us and does not like them. And the Levitical priesthood became very centered. Okay, Rather than remembering that it was a provincial thing to keep this mustard seed pure, it became sort of a sectarian, cultic thing, and we get to have our sins forgiven, and they don't. And they lost the universal perspective of God. They lost it. And it became self-centered and focused. And we're better. It became nationalistic. When you lose the perspective of God, who has a love for the whole world, you get nationalistic. And you begin to equate your patriotism with your gospel. Very dangerous thing to do. Ask the Christians in Germany in 1941. It's easy to get sucked up into sort of a patriotism. Well, that's what was going on here. And these Hebrew Christians are thinking about going back to their Levitical priesthood. The ones that, that the author's writing to, they're thinking about abandoning Christ as high priest and going back to this Levitical priesthood, going back to this kind of sectarian, narrow, nationalistically defined religion. There's a security in that, you know? I, it, it's familiar to them. We don't want to get too hard on them. We do the same thing. I came out of a church that thought it was the only ones that were saved, and I didn't like that intellectually. It bothered me profoundly because it seemed like it had a very narrow God. On the other hand, there was something very secure about it. I, I'm special. This is what fuels cults. I, you know, we got it right here. We got the truth. They're all, you know, they're missing the boat. They're wrong. They're dirty. They're slimy. They're not saved. We're saved. And heaven's going to be a little us club. And so you can understand these, these, these Jewish Christians are, are beginning to long for that. You know, gosh, it's familiar there. There's friends back there. It's a do-your-own-thing kind of religion to a certain degree. They lost the focus. So the author brings up this Melchizedek, this weird, interesting, paradoxical, enigmatic, bewildered figure called Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the, the word says here, was the priest of the Most High God and was king of Salem. Here's what's interesting about that. Most High God was God over the whole world. The highest God of gods, all right? That, that's what the term meant. And this is known by a Canaanite, who these Jews would loathe. It's like, we don't like Canaanites. Bad people. We destroyed them long ago. We were supposed to anyways. And, and, and we're, they're still fighting with them, actually, over there. Uh, this is warfare, warfare, warfare. It's like telling a Jew today that there's a Palestinian who's closer to God than they are. Not only closer to God, but he's a type of the Messiah. Ooh, tick them off. Well, that... So he's saying this. He says to them, you guys, look it. Before you ever took on your, 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 your provincial way of thinking about Yahweh, Jehovah, before you even thought about that, God was the God of, the Lord, God of all gods, Lord of all lords, King of all kings, and God over the, whole, over the whole world. And a Canaanite knew that. A Canaanite knew that. He's trying to broaden their perspective. Do you really want to go back to your little narrow provincial nationalistic thinking? Look at Melchizedek. Not only that, but Melchizedek, this Canaanite high priest, was uh, said and prophesied in Psalms 110 that the anointed one, the Christ, that's what the word Christ means, when Christ comes, he shall be like David and shall be a priest after the order of Melchizedek and he shall rule the nations. In other words, you've got to know that from the start, he's saying before Israel ever came into being, God had in mind the production of a high priest who would give a once-and-for-all sacrifice, and it would be for all nations. The Jews had forgotten about that. This author is reminding them of that. Throughout the Old Testament, you have constantly this reminder, this vision of God is for all people. 
He says, especially in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, all the nations shall stream to Israel and they shall worship the God of Israel because he, he shall be their God. He shall be Lord over all the nations, it says in, in Isaiah chapter 11. And they shall be, beat their, their swords into plows, change their weapons of destruction into weapons that will feed people. That will happen when all the nations come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It says in Isaiah 11 that he shall raise up a banner for all nations. Okay, God's goal has always been to have one flag for the planet Earth, and it's got Jesus Christ written on it. Amen? And in that time, there would be no more of these, you know, we got our flag, you got your flag, we got our plans, you got your plans, these different nations coming against one another. It says there in Isaiah 11, or maybe it's Isaiah 2, they shall learn war no more. That's God's vision for the world, to unite them under one truth, under one God, under one Lord, and make out of all the nations of the world one nation. Isaiah 66 says that the remnant of Israel shall go out and gather from all the people those who want to worship God, and they shall be as one. The most beautiful, perhaps, is in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. The Lord's telling his people, the Jews, as they're in captivity now, they're in captivity, they're under bondage to the Babylonians, okay? They don't like this, and they hate the Babylonians. But here the Lord chooses to speak through Isaiah in chapter 55, and he says this. You shall reach out to the Babylonians, and not only them, but to the Assyrians and the Persians, and da-da-da-da, you shall reach out to nations you don't know, Isaiah 55, and you shall say to them, Come, everyone who is thirsty, and get drink without any money. Come, all who are hungry, and eat from the banquet without cost. Anyone who's thirsty, anyone who's hungry can come unto me, and they shall be filled. This is not what a lot of the people in Israel at this time wanted to hear. You know what? I love those Babylonians. I know you don't like them, but I love them, and I want to use you to reach them. And then he says this in verses 8 and 9. Verses that are often quoted out of context. He says, you know, my ways are not your ways. My will is not your will, but as the heavens are higher than the earth, so is my way above your way and my understanding above your understanding. And sometimes people quote that verse whenever they uh, find a point in their theology that they can't explain. Well, you know, God's bigger than us. Fine. But you've got to know that in the original context, the verse is about this. He's talking about God's grace. He's talking about God's love. He's talking about God's heart. And what he's saying here is this. My people who are called by my name, you Israelites, my ways are obviously higher than your ways because I got an eye for the whole world, but you don't. I got a heart for the whole world, but you don't. I got a will for the whole world, but you don't. I got plans for the whole world, but you don't. And what I want you to know is this. I'm coming against you on that behalf because I want to use you to reach the world. God's never given up on his universal vision. And his goal was always to have the nations united in the kingdom of God, which he shall someday have, and they'll be united under one high priest who shall reconcile by his love, reconcile every one of them to the Father. Melchizedek was a type of that. Before God ever planted the mustard seed of Israel, there was a mustard seed called Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God, coming from the land of Canaan. And then the author says to these Hebrew Christians, who are thinking about becoming, going back to the Levitical priesthood, he says this, Remember Melchizedek. Remember the, the Messiah that was to come after Melchizedek? Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecy given in Psalms 110 about that Messiah who would be in the order of Melchizedek, who would be a priest not just to Israel, but to the whole world. Why would you go back to the Levitical priesthood? First, or the first thing said by John the Baptist about Jesus in the book of John is this. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, I love this, John 1.29, he says to the people, Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. 
You've all always had these little lambs that you sacrifice day after day to atone for your sins. Well, this is the lamb supplied by God who takes away the sin of the world, praise God. He's going to take away the sin of the whole world, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. And so we're told again in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says that we, when, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Our defense lawyer is what the word actually means. We have a defense lawyer. Thank God for that. With the Father. His name is Jesus Christ, who atones for our sin. But then, to guard against this parochialism, the author says this, but it's not just for our sin. 1 John 2, 2, read it. It's not just for our sin, but for the sin of the whole world. they got to know this. This blood was shed for all people, for all nations, for people of all backgrounds, for all races. It's not an us thing, a holiness club thing, an aren't we special kind of thing. That's not what it's about. It's about letting the blood of Jesus Christ flow in us, over us, and then through us to a world that needs to hear about it. The Bible says in John, the most quoted verse ever, it even shows up on NFL football, John 3.16. Everybody knows this verse. In fact, I was talking to my daughter's boyfriend the other day, and he's trying to impress me with his Bible knowledge. And so he, he, he's really a character. He goes, so what's your favorite verse? And I said, well, you know, I don't really have a favorite, but maybe Romans 8, 1 would count, you know, be it. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, well, mine, let's see. I think John 3, 16 is my favorite verse. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? Uh, you know, I got it right off of TV. It must be an important verse. Right between the goalposts, there it is, John 3, 16. God so loved the world. Let's all say it like a liturgy here. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. It was the world that he had in mind. And verse 17 is even more important. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, in verse 19, it tells us that some love darkness. Here's condemnation, it says in verse 19, chapter 3, book of John. Here's condemnation, that people love darkness rather than light. And God is a God who respects your integrity, and if you want to choose darkness, he lets you do it. But that's not about a limitation on God's love. That's a limitation on your willingness to receive God's love. Very different kind of thing. From God's heart. Jesus Christ is offered up for all people of all times. 1 Timothy says it as good as you can say it. He says that God desires, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. 1 Peter 3.10 puts it like this, God's not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. He's not, he doesn't desire anyone to perish. Not 10,000 years ago, and not 10,000 years in the future, and not anywhere on this planet. He desires every single person to be saved, and so it says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus Christ gave his life a ransom for all. A ransom for all. And if you understand the universal heart of God and the universal focus of Jesus Christ, then you'll understand what it is to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek and how that differs from this little uh, Levitical kind of thing that was going on in the Old Testament. And the author saying to the people of Hebrews, uh, the, the book of Hebrews, this is a priest after the Most High God. Jesus Christ is a priest like in the order of Melchizedek. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Why would you go back to that? God's heart has always been to, to use the uniqueness of Israel with their Levitical system to point beyond itself to a priest after the order of Melchizedek who would be a mustard seed to the whole world. Now there's two implications of this. Two implications. One, it means this. If God loves the whole world, 
and Jesus died for the whole world, it means, at the very least, that Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ died for you. It still amazes me sometimes and kind of grieves me that there are people who wonder about that, who wonder about that. Like, there's a possibility that it's for everybody else but not for me. And there's some teaching out there that kind of says, well, he only died for the people God pick and chose. But it says that he gave his life a ransom for all. God so loved the world. He's not willing that any should perish. He died for you. And whether you receive it or not is in your court now. The ball's in your court. But the question is this. I mean, you've got to know that he did die for you. He wants the blood of Jesus Christ to apply to you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to be one of the people about whom it says in Hebrews 7, he lives to make intercession for you. He wants to be your defense lawyer. He wants you to be able to go to your grave knowing that you know that you're right with the Father, not because you did good things and not in spite of things you did bad things, but just because you'll grab onto Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It applies to you. If the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to save the thief on the cross, who knew very little about God and knew very little about Jesus, but he had a heart that was salvageable, and just said, Lord, can I be with you today? Can I be with you in paradise? And Jesus said, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. If the blood that was even dripping at that moment is sufficient to save the thief on the cross, despite his lack of knowledge about things, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover you. Despite the fact that maybe you're very confused about a lot of things, receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to forgive and wash clean someone like uh, the woman caught in the, in the act of adultery. Then the blood's sufficient to cleanse you and get you right with God, though perhaps you've been an adulterer. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse someone like the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer of Christians, then the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse you, even if you've been a murderer. And the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cleanse someone like David, who was both an adulterer and a murderer, to cover up his adultery, if the blood reached back into the Old Testament that far and could wash David clean and make him whiter than snow, then I'm telling you this morning, the blood is sufficient to cover you, even if you've been a murderer and even if you've been an adulterer. It's sufficient to cover you even if you're a racist, because God wants nothing more than to get you out of your racism. And it's sufficient to cover you even if you've been had that grievous sin called greed, because God wants you to get you to get you out of your greed. And it's sufficient to cover you even if you've been promiscuous, even if you're a cheat, even if you're a liar, even if you've had abortions, even if you've been married five times, it was sufficient to cover the woman at the well who was married five times. It's sufficient to cover you even if you've been married five times. Amen. Know this. It's sufficient. Amen. It's sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It's not like just barely sufficient, like I hope there's enough. No. It overflows with sufficiency. It's a no questions thing. You know, you know no one is going to go to hell, strictly speaking now, because of their sin. Because the cause is no longer their sin. Because the blood is there to forgive them. They go to hell because they refuse to accept Jesus Christ. The sin issue is taken care of. There's compatibility now if you'll but receive it. The blood is sufficient, and it applies to all who say yes to it. Whosoever will. This morning, I'm not closing yet. i got one more point to make. But this morning, I want to tell you that because you start reaching for your purse. No. This morning, it looks like I'm giving an altar call. I'm not yet. But if you're here this morning and you have not explicitly received that, I implore you, I encourage you to do that and enter into, become part of this mustard seed and have your sins forgiven and get right with God.
There's that implication here, and this is the second point, my final point, that's here for us believers. And it's this. In the Old Testament, there was a high priest, and there were also priests under the high priest, and that's going on even today uh, in, in the church. There's one high priest, the Bible says, and that is Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Jesus Christ. He, he gave up his life once and for all. There's no need to repeat sacrifices. He did it. It's done. It's final. There's one mediator, one who reconciles us with God. That's the high priest. But at the same time, you've got to know this. Under that high priest, there are other priests. Someone asked me, are there priests in the church today? And I said, yes. And it should be all believers. The bio, a priest is someone who's the go-between. Someone who brings God to people and someone who brings people to God. That's what a priest is. Now, we don't sacrifice for other people's sins. We don't atone for anyone's sins. Only one does that, and that's Jesus Christ. Only he has the power to forgive sins from a God perspective. At the same time, we've got to know this. All who are under the atoning blood of that high priest are now priests on his behalf. And we are to do what Israel was supposed to do. That's why the Bible calls us the new Israel. We are the mustard seed. We are the leaven. We are called the salt. We must never get like the, the, the Levitical priesthood did or like the nation of Israel got. We must never begin to think that that makes, an, makes it an us club. That our job is to throw out moral judgments on the world and begin to look at disdain with the world and whatever. We are called as the mustard seed and as the leaven. We're called to serve the world. Jesus Christ, he came and he said, I've come not to be served, but to serve others. And so it is in the church, the bride of Christ, this mustard seed that we're all a part of. We're called to serve the world. We are called to be mediators to the world, to bring God to people and to bring people to God. That's our vocation. Getting saved is not, it is for you, yes, because God wants to live eternally with you. But it's also a vocation, and it's just as much a vocation as it is an individual salvation. And the vocation is simply this, and it's true of every person who's a believer here in this auditorium and throughout the world. We're called to be priests to the world, to spread the mustard seed, not just or even primarily in what we say, but in what we do. We are to be the expression, the flesh, the blood of God's universal love. This passion that runs throughout the whole Bible, we are to incarnate that in our life, to bring God's love and to bring God's grace and to bring God's truth to people and then to bring people to God, to pray for them, to lead them to salvation. That's our role as priests, and every one of us have that job. So we've got to know this. Someone just testified last Sunday night uh, at a prayer group about how you know, her, her brother had died, and, and, and her small group came around her, and they, she said they were, they, were, they were God's love incarnate. They were the flesh and blood of God's love, and they ministered to me. That's what we're supposed to be doing. we got to know this. There's not a person on the planet that we could ever make eye contact with, that we could ever not run across, that we can know this about them. God loves them with a passionate love. Jesus died for them with his blood. And we are perhaps called to be priests to them. Jesus loves your husband. God sent Jesus to die for your husband. You're called to be a priest to your husband. Or to your wife. Or to your children. You're called to bring God's love, to be an expression of God's love. That neighbor on the street who is your enemy, who drives you crazy, who just drives you nuts, mad, crazy, you want to just burn her house down or something. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies. He's talking to kingdom people here. Be a priest. Show God's love to that person because whether you like it or not, God loves them. Jesus died for them. You're called to be a priest to them. You can't do it on your willpower. 
you. She, you. I love you so much. No, but if you let the mustard seed take root in your own life, the high priest lives in you. He lives in you. He'll conquer your hatred. He'll conquer your, your, your apathy and give you his heart towards those people. And we're called to minister to them. Every person we come in contact with is a person who is a candidate to receive the news about God's love. And that's how we're priests. And not just in our nation. And I do close with this. Because it's an important word right now in our history. Jesus died for all the nations. And there's not a person on the planet he doesn't love and Jesus didn't die for. And that's true of the Zulu tribe in Africa. It's true of the Aborigines. It's true of the faction fighting people in Somalia and El Salvador and Bosnia and Rwanda. It's true of the people of Iraq. And God calls his people to have a burden for all people. Now, that doesn't mean that you're called to be a missionary, but maybe you are. And you should think about that and try that on. Maybe you're called to personally be the priest to those people. Or maybe you're called to support a person who's called to be a priest to those people. Or at least to pray for the, the, the person who's called to be a priest to those people. Or at least to pray for those people. And we got to know that Jesus Christ died for Saddam Hussein. Amen? He died, and he loves Saddam Hussein. Someone just cleared their throat. Uh-oh, here it goes. You know what? And I don't care what your political opinion is about whether we should bomb them or not or all that. That's, that's kingdom of this world stuff. Let them work it out. But I do know this. There's no place in the body of Christ to have, and it's kind of rampant in our culture right now, a sort of redneck patriotism that says, let's bomb those suckers. Let's really take care of them. Let's, you know, exert, you know, whatever. If we have to bomb them, you bomb them. But you know what? The people of God should, have, should live by a higher calling that at least says God's heart breaks over this. And our heart should break over this. And we should pray for Saddam Hussein. And we should pray for Bill Clinton. Really pray for Bill Clinton. And <laughs> he, he, needs his, he needs prayer. The Bible says pray for the leaders of the land. And there is a call in the kingdom of God to transcend the narrow patriotism that characterizes our culture. Because God's heart is not about America. God's heart is for the world. This morning, if you're not a believer, after I close, I want to invite you to come forward and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Make him your high priest. Let him wash you clean and get right with God. People.